This is The Guardian. Welcome to Weekend, a podcast that helps you switch off from your busy day-to-day and find entertainment and inspiration in the best Guardian and Observer writing from the week. You can either listen to this as one podcast or play each article as individual listens. Just scroll down the description on the podcast page for the timings of what we are featuring. Coming up, columnist Marina Hyde picks over the rubble of this week's decision-making by the Tories. Reporter Sean Ingle delves into the wild world of chess. And finally, writer Tom Lamont sits down with beloved British writer, actor and comedian Lenny Henry. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Before we begin, just a warning, there's a bit of bad language in this episode. Now, while the Prime Minister and the Chancellor will be happy to see the back of this year's Tory party conference, MPs are already pining for the golden era of Johnson and Patel. Marina Hyde has some words of wisdom. If only they would listen. Read by Colleen Prendergast. As part of his latest U-turn, misunderstood genius Kwasi Karteng is now going to get the Office for Budget Responsibility to cost his debt plan and publish it this month instead of on the 23rd of November. That's good. I am going to get Jordan Pickford to save Leonardo Bonucci's goal in the 67th minute of the Euro 2020 final. In Birmingham, it turns out the government's massive mini-budget was actually a before photo, with ideas yet to reach their final form. Elsewhere in this larval cinematic universe, Liz Truss is still suggesting she isn't going to raise benefits in line with inflation, which will be the next thing she folds on. There are currently radioactive nuclides with longer half-lives than her policies. We keep hearing Truss needs a reset, which sounds like the sort of solution Moscow would have proposed for the Chernobyl reactor shortly after the core had ruptured, destroyed the reactor building and caught fire in the open air. Anyway, the Tory party conference. An event so cracked that Michael Gove could credibly turn up to it and act like it's on drugs. Gove did more gigs than Ed Sheeran at the Birmingham gathering, but Truss's cabinet was already nearing the separate limo stage of a monster band's implosion. Be advised, this was a conclave that a huge number of Conservative members of Parliament found simply too distasteful to attend which certainly puts things into perspective. I'm trying to picture a Star Wars spin-off in which the Rebel Alliance was run by Gove and Grant Shapps, and it's possible even Disney Plus wouldn't make it, which, again, certainly puts things into perspective. 
Pretty Patel was spoken of as some kind of grandee, which certainly takes perspective and does something absolutely unmentionable with it. British politics runs on about ten knackered clichés, which is why we had to refer to the Chancellor's surprise abolition of the 45% tax rate in his maxi budget as a rabbit. Two weeks ago, the magician pulled this rabbit out of the hat and, as you may dimly be aware, has since detected some kind of adverse reaction to the trick. What you're watching this week is the rabbit being brutally killed and dismembered in front of the horrified children, while the magician and his assistant, the Prime Minister, scream, Stop crying, kiddies! Just enjoy the show! As for why it took so long for them to move to Bunnyside, accounts vary. According to the Chancellor, we were absorbing the reaction. Righto. I hope that Quateng and Truss are very absorbent. At this rate, they're going to need both first pockets and a dry-weave top sheet. Speaking of characters who practice extreme emotional suppression, Quateng's turnaround recalled Leonard Nimoy's first autobiography, which was called I Am Not Spock. That title caused a Star Trek fan furore so intense that it informed the title of Nimoy's second autobiography, I am Spock. Hey, he got it. He listened. But did Quateng? His supposedly make-or-break speech screamed, I have neither the time nor the inclination to explain myself to you. Unfortunately, the Chancellor is no Jack Nicholson. And yet, he did seem to be unwisely attempting some form of acting, walking deliberately slowly to the lectern to set up his opening line, What a day! Quateng moves like an MDF kitchen dresser, but the delivery is pure woodchip. Optics-wise, it probably wasn't great that beneath the conference hall lights, the Chancellor was sweating like... well... He was sweating like a free marketeer whose clever plan has just wiped hundreds of billions off the free markets. This type of sweating is probably the only thing that could make a glassblower's arse slash a paedophile in a prison riot slash a marine in a maths test break off from their own benchmark perspiration to observe, Man alive, that guy looks insanely sweaty. Still, at last we have an entity more annoying than the first person ever to think they've had a baby. It's the Chancellor, who thinks he's the first person ever to try to grow the economy. By now, you may be judging that a period of silence would be most welcome from the many, many commentators who were only last month droning on about how you underestimate Liz Truss at your peril. How do you like this peril, guys? Don't underestimate Liz Truss, we kept hearing. And yet, why not? It saves time. I underestimated her, and you know what? I still overestimated her. Any amusements this week? Watching Treasury Chief Secretary Chris Philp becoming aware in real time that he is being lined up for the human sacrifice role. 
But we've already heard way more than enough from emerging shithouse Jake Berry, the Conservative chairman who, on Sunday, expanded on the government's brilliant plan for struggling people to simply make the choice to stop struggling. As Berry put it, People know that when their bills arrive, they can either cut their consumption or they can get a higher salary, higher wages, go out there and get that new job. That's the approach this government is taking. Oh, I see. If that's the case, mate, could you, you personally, simply be better at your job? Could you either cut your own mic forever or make the choice of getting up one morning and landing somewhere in the same postcode as adequate? That's the approach this country is taking, Jake. Regrettably, the party is still at denial stage, so other delusions are available. Truss is the UK's fourth Prime Minister in not much over six years, Yet many Conservatives are reacting to the latest horror show by suggesting they're on some kind of accumulator. Take Peter Cruddus, a Boris Johnson crony who went through a cash-for-access scandal but was still ennobled by the previous PM as part of the latter's post-democratic commitment to making the upper chamber literally 10% useless bastards he'd personally picked, with even more to come from him in some absolutely fetid lavender list yet to get its airing. Anyway, here's his lordship this week. I believe the best option for Truss is to work with Boris, hallucinated Cruddus, to allow Boris to return as the leader with Truss getting a key job in the new cabinet. There could be a runoff between Rishi and Boris Johnson for the members to decide. There would only be one winner, Boris. Sorry, what? We've all been there, haven't we? In a pub while our most chaotic friend unleashes another monologue about the latest toxic guy she's into, thinking that if we have one more drink, we're finally going to be the one to say it. For the love of God, for your sanity and for all of ours, had you thought about just being single for a while? This really is starting to look much the same. I don't mean to state the fist knowingly obvious here, but has the Conservative Party thought about just being single for a while? That was Welcome to Tory Conference 2022. So bad even Michael Gove has drawn the line. By Marina Hyde. Read by Colleen Prendergast. Next. Chess's stuffy image has been shaken by recent allegations of cheating. But as any fan or player can tell you, and Sean Ingle is about to reveal, it has long been younger, hipper and wilder than most outsiders realise. Read by Dan Starkey. Just a heads up for anyone with young children listening. There's a small bit of adult content at the beginning of this piece. One of Chess's best-known grandmasters is considering a theory so outlandish that, until three weeks ago, it lurked only in the murkiest corners of the internet. Vibrating anal beads, says Simon Williams, a popular commentator known as Ginger GM. He pauses to consider the claims, amplified by Elon Musk, that a remote-controlled sex toy could help a player cheat. 
and then he delivers a withering dismissal. It's completely surreal, he replies. Laughable. Monty Python-esque. It's an interesting idea, but it's not going to work. Tell that to the world's media, who've reported every juicy twist and sordid allegation of Chess's cheating scandal ever since the world champion, Magnus Carlsen, quit the prestigious $500,000, £447,000 Sinkfield Cup last month after losing to an American teenager, Hans Niemann. Seemingly overnight, Chess has become part soap opera, part whodunit. Neiman, 19, insists he is willing to play naked to prove he is now clean, after admitting to cheating online when he was 12 and 16. However, Carlson doesn't believe him, and resigned after just one move when they faced each other again in a recent online tournament. But as the story rumbles on, it tells something else too. Chess has radically changed. The fusty stereotype of a game played by socially awkward men and boys in drafty church halls and in pub rooms cloistered away from regular punters is no longer the norm. Instead, we have entered a new era of chess. Younger. Hipper. Even a little rock and roll. Online, a new breed of glamorous chess streamers has sprung up some of whom earn hundreds of thousands of pounds a year. Millions more are now playing and watching. Meanwhile, at the top level, stories abound of cheating, excessive drinking, groupies, even death threats, if not yet at the same time. Much of this is down to Carlson, the world's best player for more than a decade. He is young, 31, witty and whip-smart, and he has a hinterland outside the game. Carlson used to model for G-Star Raw, came 10th out of 7.5 million players in the 2019 Fantasy Premier League competition, and is also a decent poker player. His company, Play Magnus Group, was recently sold for about $82 million. But another notable development in chess's growth came at the end of 2017, when the biggest chess website, chess.com, pivoted towards making the game an eSport by partnering with the streaming platform Twitch. Then came the multiplier effects of the COVID lockdown and the Netflix show The Queen's Gambit, which sent Chess's popularity into the stratosphere. In August 2022, the popular and free website Lee Chess hosted more than 92 million games, compared with 37 million in August 2019 and 6 million in August 2016. During the pandemic, Chess.com was also incredibly smart in recruiting eSports stars to play in a series of amateur tournaments called PogChamps, says the Grandmaster Daniel King, who also runs the YouTube channel Power Play Chess. They became absolutely massive, and Chess really crossed over. Suddenly, players such as 34-year-old Hikaru Nakamura, who was once ranked second in the world behind Carlsen in classical chess, which takes hours to play, were spending far more time streaming their online blitz or bullet games where they have just three minutes to make all their moves. Nakamura would do this while answering questions on chat and giving blow-by-blow accounts of the latest chess drama. Nakamura was noted for being fantastically strong at bullet chess long before it was sort of hip to play online, and he has turned into the perfect chess streamer making millions, says King. He's gobby, He's opinionated, 
He doesn't care about upsetting people. He's basically just hacked an online algorithm that means you're going to be successful. Nakamura aside, most chess content producers are not among the world's elite. But, as Jennifer Shahard, the two-time US chess champion and author of Chess Queens, points out, they have found a way to connect with new chess audiences, and they work hard to maintain it. A lot of the superstar streamers are incredibly talented, academically and socially, she says. Alexandra Botez was the CEO of a tech startup in Silicon Valley before she decided to try streaming. Among the new breed of female streamers is 20-year-old Anna Kramling from Sweden. Two years ago, she was planning to study international relations or politics at university. Instead, she has become a popular chess personality, despite being ranked about 17,000th in the world. Kramling has succeeded because she produces content that is creative, universal and very watchable. A video of her playing a street game against Carlson in July has attracted 3 million views on YouTube. Another, entitled I Trolled This Chess Hustler Into Thinking I Was a Beginner, has been watched 2.4 million times. Crambling is probably now better known than her mother, Pia, a grandmaster who has been one of the top female players for nearly 40 years. She was really known during her time, Crambling says of her mother, but now there's a new way of being known in chess, and it doesn't mean you have to be the best in the world. It's a sign of the times. Crambling says that most of her audience is between 18 and 25 and overwhelmingly male, about 95% according to YouTube stats. Crucially, they are willing to pay subscriptions or watch advertising to support chess players. Levy Rosman, aka Gotham Chess, is said to make more than $1 million a year from YouTube. A leak of Twitch subscriptions last year suggested that Nakamura earned $773,000 from that platform alone, while Botez and her sister Andrea made 400000 Last year, FIDE, the chess governing body, tried to capitalise on the growing interest from women in chess by signing a sponsorship deal with the breast enlargement company Motiva, which was immediately criticised as gross and misogynistic. The renowned chess photographer, Maria Emilianova says many are still unhappy and it remains a running joke behind the scenes on the women's circuit. There has been plenty of other drama off the board too. Grandmasters regularly sniping at each other on social media, players falling out over rogue chess moderators, or even, in Dutch Grandmaster Anish Geary's case, having their private messages hacked and leaked. Last year, a video emerged of Nakamura wrestling in the street with another grandmaster, Eric Hansen, after a drunken blitz game turned sour, watched on by other bemused players. The combination of alcohol and being on the road can also make relationships between players, and even chess groupies, more common than you might think. People often end up getting together, says one source, who preferred not to be named. It's not that unusual. We even joke about the B tournament, meaning, are you with anyone? Are you seeing anyone? And then the groupy side of it has always been there, although not as much as rock bands. Old-timers will tell you some of this happened back in the day too, although with no social media, it usually remained in the shadows. At the 1986 Chess Olympiad, for instance, the British player Nigel Short was furious that his rival Tony Miles had been put on board one instead of him. 
but it was only when Miles died in 2001 that Short revealed how he had got his own back. I obtained a measure of revenge not only by eclipsing Tony in terms of chess performance, he wrote, but also by sleeping with his girlfriend, which was definitely satisfying, but perhaps not entirely gentlemanly. Meanwhile, the Grandmaster and philosopher Jonathan Rosen remembers how alcohol affected the response of a Russian Grandmaster, whom he beat in a prestigious tournament in 2004. It was a perfectly straightforward game, without any reason to think that cheating was involved, he says. But when he saw me later, to my surprise, he said, I see you on the street, I kill you, understand? I was really shocked, even though he was a bit of a lunatic, and might have been drunk at the time, because it was still a kind of death threat. Unsurprisingly, alcohol and chess still mix. A lot of players are heavy drinkers, says Emilianova. Some have to go into this dry state for the entirety of the tournament, just to be able to finish it on the same level. One chess player is famous for finishing his final game, and ten minutes later, coming back with his eyes being like glass, and you know that he doesn't see you anymore. It shows how stressful the game is, she adds. Sometimes afterwards, a player can't fall asleep the entire night because they keep replaying moves in their head. There is sometimes a darker side, too. In 2020, Botez warned it was still common for male players to use their age and position to go on the hunt for women and girls. It has been going on for so long and no one blinks an eye, she said. The extent to which people never say anything and find things okay is pretty spooky. Other women echoed similar concerns to The Guardian, but none wanted to go public. In recent years, many newcomers have become hooked on the addictive thrill of seeing their rating rise after they win a game, as well as the jolts of adrenaline as they take multiple decisions while their clock ticks down. But if they hang around long enough on a chess website, they will find out what it's like to face a cheat. In March 2020 alone, Chess.com closed nearly 10,000 accounts for fair play violations, including seven titled players. Cheating is a chess player's curse, admits Rosen, whose book, The Moves That Matter, deftly explores the relationship between the game and life. Because you were always asking, how is this adversary trying to get me? There is this inherent necessity for vigilance that can spill over into paranoia. People forget chess is also a sublimation of war, and a ritual encounter with death, he adds. Because, in effect, your life's on the line. So the stakes are high. People feel it. Those stakes are even higher at elite level, where big money is at stake, suspicion is rampant, and slam-dunk proof with computer analysis is possible. FIDE's chief anti-cheating expert, Dr Kenneth W. Regan, believes Neiman has not cheated in the past two years. However, some, such as the FIDE master Yosha Iglesias, have raised concerns over the Americans' incredible accuracy in some games using the website Chessbase's Let's Check analysis, which compares a player's moves with the best computer ones. Chess.com and Carlson also both believe that Neiman has cheated more recently than his last indiscretion in 2020. In a statement tweeted last week, Carlson made his feelings clear. When Neiman was invited last minute to the 2022 Sinkfield Cup, I strongly considered withdrawing prior to the event, he said. I ultimately chose to play. I believe that Neiman has cheated more, and more recently, than he has publicly admitted. His over-the-board progress has been unusual, and throughout our game in the Sinkfield Cup, 
I had the impression that he wasn't tense or even fully concentrating on the game in critical positions, while outplaying me as black in a way I only think a handful of players can do. This game contributed to changing my perspective. For now, though, there is no hard proof being offered by Carlson, only an intuition that something is not quite right. For many, that is unfair on Neiman, who says his improvement has come from studying 10 hours a day. Other players have waded into the controversy. Perhaps the 2018 world title challenger, Fabiano Carwuna, put it best when he analysed one of Neiman's matches from earlier this year. This game to me is quite extraordinary, he said. It's either a genius or it's fishy. Incredible game. To win so flawlessly without any mistakes against a strong opponent with not entirely natural play in a complicated position. I'd be so proud to win this game. So, where does all this leave chess? In a fug of suspicion that seems unlikely to lift any time soon. Carlson's critics maintain that he was unfair and reckless to damn Neiman, which could lead to the teenager, in effect, being cancelled by getting fewer invitations to major events. Others, though, believe that the Norwegian is right to shine a light on an issue that blights the game and has festered for far too long. People are paranoid, admits the US Grandmaster Robert Hess. Because when they play, they know there may be cheaters amongst their midst. Everyone is on edge. And because there is no players' association within chess, there is nowhere to speak to and say, hey, we need to have a forum and talk about this. That was Cheating, Groupies, Big Money and Drunken Brawls, How Chess Went Rock and Roll by Sean Ingle, read by Dan Starkey. We'll be back after this short break. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Welcome back to Weekend. Now, his partner tells him to be more choosy but the multi-talented Lenny Henry just can't help himself. The result, Tom Lamont discovers, is not just a brand new memoir, a children's book and breaking new ground in the world of fantasy, but finally opening up about a few home truths. Read by William Vanderpoy. Lenny Henry's mum used to say to him, our lives are like gardens. Be careful what you plant in them because everything needs tending. And I don't think I've planted my own garden very judiciously, Henry says, when we meet for lunch on a mild September afternoon. It is three weeks to the day since he published a volume of his memoirs, Rising to the Surface. In another three, his children's novel, The Book of Legends, will appear in bookshops. Overnight, Episodes of the new The Lord of the Rings TV show, The Rings of Power, will appear online. Henry has a small role as a hobbit. At home in Oxfordshire, he keeps a copy of the Soprano scripts on his bedside table. To help him, 
sharpen his show-running work on an imminent ITV drama about the Windrush generation. GQ magazine recently suggested that Henry was undergoing a renaissance. A renaissance, they said. But honestly, all through his long career, Henry has flitted and filled his days like this. Gigging, writing, acting, campaigning, broadcasting, studying. My partner, Lisa Makin, a theatre producer, thinks I've got to figure out a way to be more choosy, says Henry, who recently turned 64. She thinks I should do less, reap more. I just don't like ruling anything out. I run around my metaphorical garden saying, Look at that big weed! <laughs> no need to deadhead anything here. Though Henry has patches of grey in his hair and beard and walks with a slight stoop, he could pass without much difficulty for a forty-something. He arrives to meet me on the concrete concourse outside the British Library in London, wearing a blue Oswald Boateng suit, a paisley shirt and purple Dr Martens. While lunching on a pastrami sandwich and a Coke, he is recognised by commuters, security guards and library visitors. He exchanges waves. Even from a distance, people seem to warm to that breathless exuberance that has been part of Henry's public persona for almost half a century. In conversation, he will frequently adopt voices or characters. Cheesy 80s disc jockey, gravelly American P.I., the Jamaican accent of his relatives, the brummy lilt of his hometown of Dudley. And sometimes these skits reveal something extra about how he feels. When I ask if I can push him further on this or that personal question, he becomes a Jamaican elder, leaning back and murmuring, Go ahead, go ahead, in a way that makes no promises. When I tell him that my nine-year-old daughter loved his book of legends so much that she stayed up for hours in bed with it, palely turning the pages long after she would normally have fallen asleep, Henry barks with pleasure. Perhaps to cover his pride, he segues straight into a character, pretending to be a Hollywood starlet, modestly accepting an award. Oh, tell her thank you. Tell her thank you very much. The Book of Legends, a quest novel in the vein of Tolkien or C.S. Lewis, is his second children's book. His first, a superhero novel called The Boy with Wings, came out last year. Both focus on characters who are young and black. Henry wrote them to redress what he sees as an absence in children's literature. My daughter Billy arrived in 1991, and I remember when she was little, it was a sharp sting. There were hardly any books that spoke to her, who she was, a baby of colour. When Billy was older, she and Henry read the Harry Potter books together. They enjoyed them, but there weren't many characters in whom she could see herself. There was the kid who did the commentary in the Quidditch matches. Dean. You know, the one who had the loudest voice. At the time, Henry was reminded of his own experiences as a preteen reader in Dudley, alternately omitted or belittled by the literature available to him. You know the first book a teacher ever recommended I should read? Uh, it wasn't The Three Musketeers. It wasn't A Tale of Two Cities. It was Little Black Sambo. Imagine! On trips to Dudley's public library, he remembers reading Urge's Tintin books, loving them, but feeling unnerved by them. All of a sudden, you'd been in the African jungle, 
and people were wearing grass skirts and saying, Unga Bunga. You can't process something like that as a kid. You don't know you're being patronised. You just read it. You compartmentalise. You put it to one side of your brain so that you can enjoy the rest of the book as an artefact. At least since he was in his 40s, Henry says he has meant to sit down and write a children's book for middle-grade readers that would be both a decent yarn and an invitation to the dance for a young and black audience. It took him decades to glue his ass to a seat, lots of goes and tries and attempts. He says he knows people get vexed about famous people writing children's books. I'm aware there's a sniffy attitude towards celebs writing this stuff. I read Tom Fletcher's books. I don't think about him as the guy from Busted or McFly or whatever. I think he writes funny. His are funny books. When he finally got up the momentum on his own fiction, Henry says he wrote everywhere. At the kitchen table, on set, in the Groucho Club. He devised The Boy With Wings as a superhero story because when I was young, there weren't any who looked like me. The Book of Legends became a quest novel because he does the voice of a funk DJ. You never see no brothers on a quest. Advanced copies of that book come with a letter from Henry explaining his history as a fan of Tolkien's Middle Earth and Lewis's Narnia. Both were thrilling sagas. Both were white sagas. By adding to the contemporary work of authors such as Mallory Blackman, Nadia Shireen and Nathan Bryan, Henry says he's loving being part of an upflowering of minority children's writing. You walk past a bookshop window and think, it might not have happened yet, but it's happening. We're at the beginnings of something. He tells a story about doing an acting job on a Netflix fantasy series called The Witcher. His co-star in that show, Amy Murray, is deaf. And when they were hanging out between takes, Henry mentioned that one of the main characters in his new book was deaf. Murray started to cry, Henry says, and he understood why. Readers don't forget that feeling of being made invisible. Recently, with the broadcast of The Rings of Power, there has been some bleak and predictable criticism about the casting of actors who look like Henry as hobbits, elves, dwarves and such. To borrow from Henry, imagine! This guy who once read Tolkien's Middle-earth books and wondered where all the non-white characters were now finds himself having to answer for the fact that the characters in a 2022 adaptation aren't all white. Henry rolls his eyes. The world has changed, he says. It needs to change more. But some people don't like any degree of change. They're stuck in their ways. They're sat in their pants eating hobnobs and looking at their computers, slagging off anything different. Broadening representation on a programme that will be seen by millions is the right thing to do. It's the brave thing to do. The next generation of showrunners will look back and ask, whatever took us so long? Henry says he gets that these changes might take a minute's adjustment, at least for fantasy obsessives who've pored over certain text for most of their lives. He's a fantasy obsessive himself. As well as Tolkien and Lewis, 
he grew up adoring the comic book creations of Alan Moore. As a reader of Neil Gaiman's Sandman comics, Henry was accustomed to seeing the central character of death as she appeared on the page. A white woman, originally inspired by the goth fashion designer Cinnamon Hadley. In a Netflix adaptation of Sandman that debuted this year, Death is played by a British woman of colour, Kirby Howe Baptiste. Henry says, I've read all Neil's comics. I was used to seeing death in a particular way. After one episode of Kirby, who nailed that part, I can't imagine it any other way. Something about this phase of our conversation puts him in mind of his bedside table at home in Oxfordshire. That pile of books on the go that includes... David Chase's Soprano script, a memoir about the making of Apocalypse Now, and a copy of Harper Lee's To Kill a Mockingbird. He mentions this to explain that although he can brush off the silly, trollish criticism directed at his screen presence in Middle Earth, he is far from immune to hurt on these subjects. I was rereading To Kill a Mockingbird, which I hadn't dipped into since I was in my twenties. I'd forgotten something about the language in that book. The moment Lee first uses the N-word, it was like somebody had punched me in the heart. He thought he knew the book pretty well. He thought he was more robust at 64. But that kind of thing, it can catch you by surprise. It can really knock you off your horse. And I must admit, I stopped reading. I haven't been able to pick it up again since. How strange, right? That I should be so thin-skinned. There are two versions of his early life biography. The partially true one that Henry cobbled together mid-career and the more honest backstory that he finally feels free to talk about from the distance of his sixties. His appearance on Desert Island Discs in 1989 is a fascinating document that makes for uncomfortable listening now. Henry was 30 when he was quizzed by the then-host Sue Lawley. Too young, he wonders? In the show, he talks about his mum Winifred and his dad Winston coming from Jamaica to the Midlands in the 1950s to take work in factories. Henry was born in 1958. He grew up to be a teenager with a knack for doing impressions. He appeared on national TV at 16 in a talent contest called New Faces before moving on to a sitcom about a black British family called the Fosters. Then, touring with a light entertainment troupe called the Black and White Minstrel Show through the summers of the late 70s. Interesting, Henry told Lawley, of his five years as a minstrel. Nice people. Or so went the glossed-over version of his biography that Henry gave out in 1989. While studying for a BA, MA, then a PhD in film and TV studies, during the 2000s and 2010s, Henry did a lot of inner wrestling with his formative experiences in British show business. By the time he published his doctorate in 2018, he was ready to say the Foster's lack of cultural veracity, inconsistent dialects, clothes, politics, etc., was preposterous. The all-white production team had no idea how to cast a Caribbean London family and so procured black performers from all corners of the globe. As for his 
interesting experience as part of the black and white minstrel show, Henry wrote, I was miserable the entire period. In his recent memoir, Rising to the Surface, he goes further, admitting the experience left him with everlasting shame, smothered in a duvet of depression. I ask Henry what changed, why he has felt able to be honest about this. He says, there's a thing about getting to a certain age and lancing a boil. The same principle applied to the story of his parentage. As recently as 2015, when Henry wrote and produced a movie called Danny and the Human Zoo that drew from events of his own teenage years, he couldn't bring himself to talk in public about the true circumstances of his birth. Apart from close family, nobody knew. Then, in 2019, Henry decided to lance another boil. His named father, Winston Henry, wasn't his biological father. In fact, Henry was born to Winifred and another man, Albert Green, whom she'd met in the Midlands in the 1950s, before Winston travelled over to join her from Jamaica. When Henry wrote this up in a first volume of memoir, 2019's Who Am I Again?, it was like ripping off a plaster, he says. I felt like I was being truthful about myself for the first time, where before I'd had to be economical. And now I can talk about my birth father without feeling like he does an impression of a tortured superhero in pain. He grits his teeth and groans. Then he drops the performance, Lenny again, and says, They're all dead now. I can't hurt them. We talk about what a tricky thing it is, writing from life. Whether this is done in the form of autobiography or as art that's mined from real events. You have to be so, so careful, he says. There will be things that your relatives recognise. Len put that in? But at the same time, you have to try to write from your truth. For 25 years, from the mid-80s until 2010, Henry was married to the British comedian Dawn French. Their daughter, Billy Henry, was adopted as a newborn in the 1990s. The first half of the Henry-French marriage coincided with some explosive years in both their careers. By his own admission, Henry allowed his schedule to become hyperkinetic. He was part of the original comic relief cast, instrumental in its transfer from a one-off stage show that made £1 million for charity to a TV special that rakes in millions each year. He had earned his professional spurs in children's TV and an evening sketch show. Later, he got his own vehicle, The Lenny Henry Show. He formed a production company and made the well-liked 90s sitcom Chef. There were films and comedy tours. In Rising to the Surface, which tracks the story of his life up to the turn of the millennium, Henry acknowledges he sometimes let the starrier side of his life take over. On his 1984 wedding to French, he writes of rising to make his speech and suddenly regretting inviting industry people. Why did I invite all these people off the telly? Why is the woman from Heidi High at my wedding? All through the 90s, he recalls, I had something to prove and I threw myself into the work, even though... With a young child around, I could have slowed down a little and helped out a bit more. When Winifred became gravely ill in 1998, Henry decided to go off on an arranged tour of Australia. 
She died while he was gone. And in his memoirs he wonders what that was about. Why couldn't I just be at Mum's side? I still don't know, and still question my behaviour at that time. He describes what sound like the beginnings of the end of his marriage to French. My selfish need to succeed through constant working was taking its toll on my family life. I made some bad decisions. Towards the end of Rising to the Surface, which breaks off before his turn to academia, theatre acting and novel writing, Henry considers Winifred's advice about life being a garden needing tending. He concludes with melancholy frankness that working within the entertainment industry can make you the most neglectful gardener on earth. Henry has finished his lunch. He's about to drive away from the British Library in a taxi that will take this knight of the realm, he became Sir Lenny in 2015, to an afternoon engagement. We're using the time we have left to talk about a shared love of comic book films. Henry is telling a funny story about the difference between watching the Marvel movie Black Panther in a London cinema, full of delighted black teenagers, and the same movie again with his daughter in a rural cinema in Plymouth. No other black people in the room. And everyone saying, Well, that was all right, I suppose, but you can't see what all the fuss was about. While his current job on The Rings of Power is probably the most prominent acting role he's had, making helped him shoot his audition footage on their iPad, you get the sense that prose writing has become Henry's primary passion. It's writer to writer that I want to take him to task on one aspect of his recent memoir, Rising to the Surface. The last 70 or so pages are compelling because they detail Henry's mounting obsession with public recognition meanwhile tracking his neglect of obligations at home. In the penultimate chapter, he appears to realise that what really mattered all along was the personal, not the professional. Moving stuff. But then, in a chapter paying off that notion of Henry rising to the surface, he describes winning a major industry award for one of his 2000s TV shows. The chapter comes with a photo of him holding a Golden Rose of Montreux Entertainment Award, and the words, What Surfacing Looks Like. For the reader, it's an unsettling swerve, I say. It seems to undercut his epiphanies in the previous chapters about the relative value of private and public validation. Henry politely disagrees. An award is not a small thing for a black creator. Awards are a litmus test for what's happening, for what's in the air, which talents are being elevated, what shows are being lionised, what films are being slept on. You see awards and you can think, this is where we are at the moment. When he was a boy, he continues, he was given the same piece of advice by his mum that a lot of black parents gave to children. You've got to be two, three times as good as a white counterpart to be accepted as equal. You can't just be pretty good at a job. You've got to be brilliant. Otherwise, you're fucked. There's no permission to fail. Not if you're from a minority. So yeah, winning the Golden Rose felt to him a worthy place to end a book of reminiscences. But he acknowledges that over his decades in the public eye, 
he may have developed some skewed notions about validation. He says that one acquaintance who read Rising to the Surface reported back that it contained too much whinging. You've had a decent career, the acquaintance told him. You seem successful to me. Henry touches his head and says, But from in here, it's felt like a treadmill. It's felt like I could have made better choices. There's been self-doubt. There's been imposter syndrome. There's been deflation. He performs the act of deflation, swelling up like a balloon, letting the air out with a loud raspberry that turns heads. He has his golden rose. He has his knighthood. A few years back, he was made Chancellor of Birmingham City University. I ask, what validation is left to him? What would it even look like? Henry turns over a few answers in his whirring brain, perhaps trying to decide whether to take the question seriously or to treat it as a joke. He settles on something in between. I want a special medal, he decides. It wouldn't be a gold one, not a silver one. What comes after bronze? Pewter. I want a pewter medal. And I want it to be engraved with the words... He fell over in the race, but he participated. That was Lenny Henry. There's a thing about getting to a certain age and lancing a boil by Tom Lamont. Read by William Vanderpoy. Before we go, we wanted to tell you about the relaunch of the Guide newsletter with a new look and new features. Our free newsletter explores the worlds of TV, film, music, podcasts, books and more. From what's happening in Westeros to who's blowing up Spotify. Join Gwilym Mumford every Friday for a weekly look at the best in pop culture through a different lens. Sign up to The Guide today at theguardian.com forward slash guide. That's all from us. This has been Weekend, a Guardian podcast. This week's articles were read by Colleen Prendergast, Dan Starkey, and William Vanderpoy, and presented by me, Savannah Ayoade-Greaves. This episode was produced by Rachel Porter. Original music by Axel Cacoutier. The executive producer was Danielle Stevens. Join us again next Saturday. Thanks for listening. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.